now it's time for On the Couch with our resident psychologist Jane Enter, exploring life and caring for our mental and spiritual well-being on Bay FM 99.9. Welcome to our regular On the Couch segment with resident psychologist Jane Enter, based at First Light Healthcare, Byron Bay. Today we're discussing a true modern epidemic. Or is it? Depression. We all feel sad, moody or low from time to time. But when we start experiencing these feelings intensely for long periods of time, something more serious is going on that can affect our physical and mental well-being. Enter someone like Jane Enter to help. Great to speak with you once again, Jane. Hi, Fern. Thanks for having me back again. As I said there, Jane, we all go through ups and downs, of course. That's perfectly normal. Give us your take on where the line is, your definition of depression because it's it's a word that's bandied around a lot these days isn't it look it is bandied around a lot but when someone is depressed it's a malignant sadness it's ongoing it's relentless the person has no perspective they feel bad about themselves they often carry guilt they ruminate on the past Last week when we discussed anxiety, anxiety is generally about the future and depression is about the past. You hold enormous regrets, you often internalise, you think you've been a bad person and it's not just, you know, the up and downs and ebbs and flow of everyday life and mood. It's a ongoing, unrelenting, waking up in the morning where you feel Why am I still here? How am I going to do the day? And it's a struggle. It's a struggle to be here. And you don't have a perspective on anything positive. You're anhedonic. You have no joy. It's a very grey space to be. We'll get into more of that soon. But just like anxiety, which we focused on last week, humans have always experienced depression in different degrees throughout the ages, haven't we? Yes. I mean, the ancient Greeks talked about um, depression as melancholia and people had a melancholic disposition. And you've got people throughout history, Churchill, artists, People who've said, you know, they have the black dog or, you know, they have periods in their life where they can see no colour and no vibrancy, no meaning and no purpose. And I guess it's true to say as well that there's probably a higher degree of depression among people living at tougher periods in history, such as during wars and economic depressions and health pandemics such as today. Yes, I mean, there's often precipitating events around where your life feels much more intense and difficult than it has done previously, or the world is in a state of suffering and you feel that quite intensely. But nevertheless, there are are people who feel depression more than others. What does make 
you're more susceptible to uh, depression? Look, there are lots of things, but, you know, there is often, um, you know, bio biochemical, biological factors that can come into play. Then, of course, we go back to that old hoary chestnut of childhood. You know, how you responded to, whether you felt wanted, whether you feel that you're a joy, whether you feel you're a burden, whether you feel there was time for you. There's that thing when you're little of implicit memory, which is that unsaid, unverbal memory of how you felt as a child. And, you know, how things happen for you as a child often can contribute to whether you end up with a more depressed nature. For example, being bullied at school, having lots of adverse childhood events, feeling overwhelmed a lot of the time by what's going on around you and your own lack of, because of your age and because of your toolkit, ability to manage what's going on around you. So you feel overwhelmed and that can lead to what we call the depressive position where life is harder for you, where things don't go well, where you don't see the joy and you don't see the positive and you become skewed very much towards a negative perspective on life. And you said to me earlier that this can last years and years and years. I, I did. There are some people who, who, you know, suddenly find a new treatment or something happens and they look back and they say, you know what, this is the first time I've felt like this in 10, 20, 30 years. And they realise that they've been depressed for a very, very long time. Just let's talk about the childhood element of this. The great Gabo Mate that we spoke about uh, last week, who incidentally is one of the world's leading experts on trauma and the psychology of addiction, he believes of course that most mental health conditions originate in childhood experience, as we said last week, and as a coping mechanism. Uh, this is no doubt also the case with uh, depression, generally speaking, is it? There's a big major contributor from childhood, and I'd just like to talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to give two examples. Just say that, you know, a child is born to a mum, and the mum happens to be the primary caregiver, and there's not much support around that mother. She might be financially struggling. She might not have people that can help her and and take the child from some from time to time. So she's constantly stressed and she becomes herself depressed. And if a baby has a depressed mum and the baby's looking for the gleam in the mother's eye and the mother's face is non-responsive and flat, the child doesn't feel seen and responded to so the child can withdraw and give up and you see this in old videos in the old days when children went to hospital to have surgeries and parents were not allowed to go with their children and you know for the first few days the child or the baby screams and screams because they they want their mother or their father and then you suddenly see this child lies, you know, lifeless and still. It's given up. It's reached despair. And that happens in young children in two or three days. 
So if you think about that, if you're a little baby and you're not having a responsive mother and there isn't a village around to help raise you and help nurture you, and please don't think I'm blaming mum because it could be any major caregiver, you withdraw and you internalise I'm not worthy or I'm a burden or I can't make my mother happy or I'm, I'm not enough for that person. And so you implicitly feel flat and unseen and unmet and that then informs how you go and your mood and your sense of self and your sense of self-worth throughout your childhood. Mm. But not all depression comes from childhood, you said. How much of it is uh, something that happens to you that triggers something from childhood or just happens to come from that particular moment and that particular life event? Do we know? Look, there's speculation on this. There are critical stages of development, like um, dependence versus autonomy. And when that child is learning to be autonomous, if it's encouraged and that child is, you know, praised and it's autonomous nature and, you know, little trial tests are encouraged, the, ch- the child says, yeah, I can do this. But if it's put down and criticised, etc., they lose confidence and they feel a low sense of, of their own worthiness and they may become less believing that they're going to succeed. So things happen for people sometimes at critical stages and that's what influences them. Then you have, as I said, adverse events. So you can have a fairly robust, resilient person and then there's a major catastrophe. A child dies or um, a terrible event happens where their whole life has changed and they may respond to that eventually with despair and depression and also depression doesn't always exist by itself sometimes people who are very very anxious get so exhausted by their worrying about everything that they end up being so tired that they end up being depressed because It's such a worry being alive that it feels too hard. So no, it doesn't only come from childhood. There are psychological and social events. There's biological vulnerabilities. There are events that can overwhelm any person, no matter how good their upbringing has been. There's a combination of things. And I asked you that because I know many situations where the exact same thing happens to two different people and they react very differently to it. One can be really depressed and the other one can be down for a bit and then move on. Yes, and often the one who can bounce back or move on has good self-esteem, good self-worth, has a perspective that this is a temporary situation, that it's not going to be forever. They've been given skills and tools growing up about how to cope with adversity because everyone is going to face adversity in their lives and they feel they have enough support and enough love and enough of everything around to go above what's happened to them. They're not going to be defined by the things that have happened to them. But other people haven't had those resources and don't have 
a belief in their own self-worth and their self-value. And so they think, oh yeah, this is how it's always going to be. And the adverse event just reinforces their view that the world is a negative place and a hard place to be. A lot of teachers and parents of school children today are very aware of depression, especially among young people. And the amount of medical prescriptions being administered for it, it's really skyrocketed in the past decade. I heard from a year 11 student just last week from one of our local high schools here in the Shire that reckons that about half of her year mates are on antidepressants. Now, I, I was truly astounded by that. Would that be an exaggeration? I think, unfortunately, that antidepressants are often prescribed prematurely. Now, I want to say this, it's very rare I come out in favour of drug companies because I think their research is often hidden. But even drug companies advise that antidepressants are not generally to be prescribed for people under 18 or 25 in some cases. So I think one really needs to be aware that if a person is prescribed an antidepressant, hopefully it's the absolute last resort and not the first point of choice. So are we over-medicating? Look, I think we are because there is very little tolerance in society for when people are not coping and they feel vulnerable. The message people get is you should always be up, you should always be on top, only winners are grinners. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff on social media where people get a lot, unfortunately, as young people, their um, view of the world. And I think Instagram has now been found to be a uh, depressing and negative influence on young people. But... There are so many influences on young people that could be moderated, they could be talked with, they could be supported. There are so many other things to do before you prescribe medication. Mm. And you know what? Time. Mm. People spending time with someone who's depressed, really asking how they Mm. are, getting to know what's depressing them, using behavioural activation, which is a... Thing where you find out what makes a person feel joy or what has helped in the past, what are they like doing, and then you do lots of that way before you go on a drug. There's also a lot of diagnosing, isn't there? I mean, there's so many so-called disorders and so many different types of depression as there well. Are. There's lots. There's major depressive disorder, which is the old um, clinical depression. And then there's melancholic depression, which is, includes psychomotor retardation, huge feelings of guilt and shame, and, you know, is very dark. Then there's psychotic depression, where people actually have delusions and hallucinations while they're depressed, thinking that they're dying or that they're dead already. Um, that's just one of uh, the, the delusions. Then you have anti pre-pregnancy and um, postnatal depression. 
And then you have bipolar disorder where you have cycling into highs of mania and going into terrible lows of depression. Then you have um, cyclothymic, which is um, a milder form of a bipolar in that you, you, you cycle up and down, but not to the extreme highs or to the extreme lows. And then you have the often overlooked and often not diagnosed dysthymia, which is just this pervasive feeling of feeling a bit flat and a bit joyless, but not enough to not get out of bed and not enough to keep going and functioning, but you just don't enjoy life much. Mm. So there are lots. And then, of course, seasonal affective disorder. Just ask Melbourne people in winter. They all, you know, often there are people who struggle with with dark periods in winter and they're advised mm. to go and have phototherapy and get light into their pineal gland. Mm. Well, Jane, take us through the process of how you work with somebody that presents to you uh, with depression. So it depends at what stage of depression they come. So if they're at the stage where they're not getting out of bed, showering is an effort, everything is overwhelming, that's a time when you think, okay, you've been like this for a while, you've come to see me, and you've actually been feeling like that for a year, you may need to actually <clears throat> be seen for medication because <clears throat> if you could have got out in bed and done things, you would have. So when it's that bad, you need to get help quite quickly. When it's somebody who's flat and they just don't go out like they used to and they don't go and socialise the way they used to, you find out if there's been any adverse events, you help get them to understand what's precipitated this, you start to use behavioural activation techniques, which is really finding out, as I said previously, what do you enjoy doing, what did you used to enjoy doing, and you prescribe more of that and less of things they don't like doing. Mm. So often with people, it's like you have one thing to look forward to every day, whether it's a cup of coffee with a friend or it's um, going for a walk, but you start off with small things that they enjoy, but they do it every single day. And when people don't want to go, if they've got the money, you get a personal trainer to go. If not, they join a work walking group where they feel accountable. Then you also do things like, you know, irregular exercise, fantastic for depression. If the person is not so depressed that they can't do that. And then there are, you know, cognitive behavioural things you can use about getting them to put perspective take. Like when you are depressed, you have no perspective. You are in a black place and the world is bad and you are bad and you're not worth it and you're just a burden to other people. You get to talk with them and work out and enhance and improve their negative perspective and bring in challenging thoughts and questions that expand their perspective to include the positive. If it's in a family context and the person is open to it, you bring in the family because you want the support to be there in a broader context. Um, 
Then there are things like interpersonal therapy where you work with people on their relationships and the relational issues that might be contributing to their depression. Then acceptance and commitment therapy has a use where people accept that you know there are things they don't have control over. There are things in life that are beyond their um, capacity sometimes. And you get them to start doing things and commit to to um, things that will lift them up, even if they don't feel like it in the moment. Because doing something over time repeatedly often does improve perspective. And you get them to perspective take. You get, okay, go and talk to four other people and get a reality check. So there are lots of little techniques you can do. And everyone's very different, of course. How long does the process generally take for the you know, the average person who isn't at the extreme end or isn't just a little bit sad? I think I think roughly six months because I think people need to be understood. They need to practice the things that they've learned in therapy. They need to feel they can talk to someone they can really trust, that they're not going to feel a burden to. Often depressed people don't talk to the people they love because they think, I'll be a burden. I don't want to make them feel bad. I don't want to make them worry. So they internalize things. But going sometimes to a professional or to someone who is not that close to them, they don't feel that sense of being a burden the way they do with people they love. So I think that's an important thing. And over six months of people working on it and looking at it and enhancing their perspective and doing things that make them feel better and they enjoy slowly, it lifts. Mm. And I understand there are different stages of so-called recovery. Uh, recovery, of course, is a unique and individual process that everyone goes through differently. But uh, are there common emotions that people experience as they go through these different stages? Look, when people first come to see you and they're depressed, they're numb. They're actually not feeling that much and that's the problem. Mm. Their affect, their emotional response is blunted. So they don't feel joy, they're anhedonic. They don't feel sadness, they don't feel anything. They just feel like they are a walking zombie, Mm. you know, just existing moment to moment and that is really horrible for that person add to that a capacity and depress people to ruminate go over and over things they regret they feel bad about they wish they'd done better the choices they wish they hadn't made the dreadful person they think they are you know one has to start to challenge that thinking and get them to see, well, actually, that is one tiny little aspect of a whole life Mm. and start to expand their thinking. So there's that stage when you're getting to just challenge and expand their thinking and get them to look at things differently. And, you know, sometimes it can be one minute of focusing on the breath where they're so focused on their breath that they're not depressed for that one minute, and that's a start. You told us last week, Jane, that anxiety is by far the leading um, thing that people are coming to you, presenting to you for help for. Is depression 
uh, up there as well? And, and how closely connected is anxiety and depression? They're very closely connected in my view. Often people, um, as I said, are exhausted by their worrying and they feel so um, tired of worrying about everything that could go wrong that they then get depressed and think then of all the past where they feel things did go wrong. So it's very seldom you just get a one clean diagnosis. Things flow and interconnect and people who get really exhausted by anxiety often get very depressed. I know that with me Jane, when I look back I've had probably two really major episodes of depression for a number of years that I had no idea was depression at the time. It's only years later looking back that I know I was depressed during that period. How common is that? I think that is such a common experience, Fern, because for you it's normal. You wake up every day and it's like, oh, yeah, here I am, another day, another dollar. Here we go again. You're not thinking, oh, God, I'm depressed. You're thinking, this is life. This is how it is. This is what it's going to be like. And you don't actually recognise that no, that's not how it is. It's not going to be like that. It's not always like that. And so it's only when you emerge from that malignant sadness that you end up saying, oh, I was really depressed then. Look, the sun's shining. I'm going out. I'm going to learn this. You suddenly have the return of excitement and joy. That's when you realise how bad you were. And how? why is that? That is so weird, isn't it? Look, because we're so bloody good at adapting. It's like, yep, this is it, here I go. We don't think, no, this doesn't have to be it and this is unusual. And remember, it's like the frog in the boiling water. Slowly, slowly, it heats up and you boil to death. Slowly, slowly, you get flatter and flatter and it just becomes your accepted state of being. Well, just remind us all what are the symptoms, the signs that we should all be looking out for so we know right here and now if we're depressed and not in five, ten years' time. Look, there's so many. There's biological symptoms where you just don't taste food the way you used to. Yeah, you couldn't be that bothered. Or the only thing that you want to do is eat. Your appetite changes, in other words. You wake up in the morning and it's not like a blue sky and the sun is shining. Of course, it's got to be summer for that. Um, It's just, yeah, another day. There's no joy. There's no excitement. Biologically, you feel a bit heavier. You don't want to move as much. Everything is heavy and hard to do. You're making your cup of coffee and it feels really like a chore. You don't feel like there's much to look forward to. You don't sort of want to see your friends. You you find yourself socially withdrawing. Someone tells you a story that normally you think, wow, that's interesting, and you go, yeah. You don't don't have much response in you. You start to, to literally withdraw from yourself, your emotions, the world, and you just go inside yourself. And if you start to recognise any of this, it's a good thing to do a depression checklist Mm. because it's insidious and it can take over quite quickly. And we certainly should remind people of 
all the help that there is out there. Certainly a lot more help than when I was growing up. There is. There's Men's Line, there's Lifeline, there's Beyond Blue, there's Courses Online, there's the Black Dog Institute. There are so many resources out there. And I'd just like to say something on this. We, In terms of depression, we are living in a very exciting time because the treatments coming out, the new treatments for depression are showing remarkable results. And in the olden days, like five years ago, people would be trialled if they needed a medication, many medications before the right one is shown. And nowadays you can go along and get a DNA test and the DNA test will tell you what medications from antidepressants to anti-anxieties to cholesterol drugs are the best for your particular, particular genotype. So that stuff is useful. Then you've got, um, they've just trialled this thing called deep brain stimulation where they implant electrodes into a person's brain that's been scanned and where they can pick the particular circuit where the depression seems to be coming from. And I read an article where a woman said that for the first time in 15 years she wasn't depressed and that she still had the thoughts but she didn't have the depression that came with them because this... um, deep brain stimulation implanted into her brain actually stimulated that particular circuit when it saw it it making different brain waves. Wow. There are some people I know who do meditation. They do yoga. They walk every day. They make themselves socialize and their depression doesn't shift that much those people will benefit from those treatments so there are chemical yeah. imbalances in the brain there are and um you know the new psychedelics psilocybin that that are coming out and being trialed seem to have very good results but those are for that extreme end for the every day i just feel you know flat exercising every day and getting your heart rate up I cannot stress that enough it's like a universal panacea for just about every mental health condition Mm. getting outside into nature connecting with people women you need to connect three times a week with your friends and other people outside your children and husband that is research evidence-based proven to enhance women's health men you need to learn to talk about stuff you need to find a friend that you can chat to and trust who you don't feel like you're going to burden because that has shown to immediately help depressed states then there are other things like journaling because when you put the thought out from your head onto the piece of paper you get a perspective and you can look at it and say god i'm negative There are things that sound really twee, like a gratitude list, and you can't fake gratitude. You've actually got to think, yeah, I am grateful that I still have a partner who loves me, or my children care about me, or the dog loves me. Anything that you can see. Dogs. Dogs are incredibly useful for people who are depressed because... They feel, right, got to get up and walk that dog because they have a sense of responsibility. Having meaning and purpose in your life is very important. And then there are the basics. If you eat well, 
you will make good neurochemicals. Good neurochemicals will help. If you sleep well, if you go to bed and have a routine at a regular time and wake up at the same time, those things help your mood. Funnily enough, unless you're a very anxious person, having a bit of caffeine in the morning can help with depressed people. Making sure that you read uplifting things. When you are miserable and sad and feeling really flat about the world, bombarding yourself with the news, negative stories, tormenting yourself with Facebook and social media about how everybody's living that life that you think you ought to be living, listening to up, uplifting podcasts, um, listening to positive stories, reading things that inspire you. If any of you have ever read um, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, that is a wonderful book for people who are depressed to read. It, it helps you find meaning even in the darkness. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of things you can do. And you know, even if it's just one minute, it's a start. You just gently start to add positive things into your life. You've made us all feel better once again. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Jane. Thank you very much, Fern. On our next On the Couch, we'll take a look at healthy parenting. What are the signs to look out for and how can we work through stuff as it arises early on so we carry less into adulthood? Hope you can join us for that.